Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of Podverb. I'm your host, Clyde Eugene Makamure. Today I'm joined by a man who, like Moses, had multiple phases in his career. In one half of his career, he was an ardent supporter of what is commonly called science. And then in a later chapter of his career, he transitioned and he started focusing on the very things that he used to hate. If this is your first time here, please remember to subscribe to Podverb in your favorite podcast player. Hello, Prof. As we start, please may you introduce yourself to the listeners. Well, my name is Walter Feit. I was a professor in zoology and a professor in medical bioscience in our South African universities. I taught at Stellenbosch, Cape Town, and University of the Western Cape. That's quite a broad experience, and the Lord has taken you multiple places. How did you end up being an advocate for the biblical narrative as far as origins is concerned? Well, most of my life I was an atheist and I was an evolutionist. I taught evolution at the university and today I am a creationist. I have been privileged to go to many sites in the world and to look at many fossil records all over the world in many different countries. And I have come to regard the Bible as a document of truth. I believe it is the Word of God because the Bible is not just a narrative about origins. It is a story of history that is often very controversial but is backed up by the science of archaeology. Besides that, the Bible has something that no other book has. It has prophecy which accurately predicts hundreds of years in advance the exact events, including the Messiah's come, his year when he would come, the way he would come, how he would die, uh, what his role is, history written in advance, kingdoms that will rise, kingdoms that will fall. And in the book of Revelation and in the book of Daniel, a very accurate description of all the events leading up to our time. And uh, you cannot gainsay it. It is irrefutable. And therefore, I started to believe that God's word is truth. But I had to have a paradigm shift as I went through the science until I discovered that science is science. And I am a, a scientist and love science. But when it comes to the philosophy of origins, then there are different ways of looking at it. And I believe now that the biblical paradigm fits the facts far better than the scientific one. That's it in a nutshell. Your life is really testament to the verse, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Let's get into the episode. I studied in circular universities. And in those universities, I remember going through Diversity of Life 1 and Diversity of Life 2. In my studies in those particular courses, my lecturer was careful to point all fossil evidence to an evolutionary explanation for the origins of life. And the question that I now have is, can the fossil record support the biblical narrative? The fossil record is a history of the biblical narrative. Now, when I was an evolutionist, I believed the common story that fossils occur when there is a chance event 
a local catastrophe or just a natural event of animals dying, settling down in mud and then becoming fossilized. Now, a fossil is nothing other than a mineralized copy of the original. So it needs water, it needs minerals. Therefore, a fossil can only form in a mineral-rich, water-rich environment where the material as it rots is exchanged for the mineral. So a fossil is not the original animal. It is a mineralized copy of the original. Now, if that were true, then the fossils should be randomly displayed, but we don't find that. We find fossil graveyards, millions and millions of fossils of particular kinds in particular areas. Moreover, all of them are in watery graves, uh, with a few exceptions. Some of them are in volcanic deposits. Some of them are in amber, but the great majority are in watery graves. Now, these watery graves are not just local phenomena, as science would have you believe. Let's say a local catastrophe, a small flooding that buried animals, because these fossil beds stretch over thousands of square miles or kilometers. They sometimes stretch virtually across continents. And therefore, they must have been deposited catastrophically at the same time. The other fact is that they are unidirectional. When you look at the, the fossil assemblages, the geological column, which consists of one flat layer on top of another, which you can see in a crosscut, like, for example, when you look at the Grand Canyon or you look at the top of mountain ranges, you see these flat layers. Now, those layers were deposited catastrophically, and you can determine the direction of flow of these mud flows, and they sometimes cross entire continents, unidirectional, so they're not localized floods. And within them, you find millions and millions of fossils, depending on where you're looking, and uh, you will find that many of these fossils are stream-orientated. So that's catastrophism. Now, where would you find a universal catastrophe of such proportions as to bury huge animals like dinosaurs, even whales, giant creatures, and many of them unidirectional? Only a flood can explain that. So catastrophism is a far better explanation for the fossil record than chance fossilization over millions of years, because then you wouldn't have unidirection, you wouldn't have any of the phenomena that you have. When you go to the fossilized forests, those forests are also unidirectional. If you go to your neighboring country, which is Namibia, you find great uh, fossilized forests there, petrified forests, and you will see, I went and measured them myself, that they are lying in a unidirection. And even the upright trees, they don't have rootstocks that have been transported in and buried also unidirectional. So uh, catastrophism, a universal flood, is a far better explanation. And if I may add one more point, there's a layer which is called the chalk layer. It's called the Cretaceous period. Now, that chalk layer is a deposition out of water, and it consists of the 
calcium carbonate skeletons of creatures that live in a marine environment, many of them unicellular, like foraminifera or radiolarians. And when they die, they settle down and they make a white chalk layer. That's what you write on the whiteboard with, writing with that chalk. So even today, if you go into the mid-Atlantic, you will find a layer of chalk on top of the mid-Atlantic ridge, the highest mountains in the Atlantic. But if you go lower down, they're gone because they dissolve on the way down. So the water must have been not very deep. And these creatures must have settled out in water. And they must have had a bloom. In other words, there was a lot of organic matter in the water. And they bloomed and died and formed the chalk layers. And that layer is a universal layer. There's only one explanation. The whole world was underwater at the same time. That's a flood. <laughs> that, that is really true. And it's, it's quite fascinating. You know, you get on so many lines of evidence that point to a global flood. Maybe if I may ask, are, are there any evidences of fossilization that are going on in the current period? You can get fossilization in the current period. In fact, you can get quite rapid fossilization. You can get the formation of coal. You can get petrified wood in very short periods of time. For example, many of the wooden posts that were planted by the early settlers in the United States, for example, as fencing, the stock that is in the ground has in many cases petrified and formed coal. Oil can form very rapidly. You can create it basically in a laboratory under certain conditions. Gemstones, some of them form incredibly rapidly, and some have been actually faked by producing them with uh, something that attracts the minerals. So, for example, you can use a charged wire to make uh, certain minerals and gemstones form very rapidly. So they don't take millions of years. These things can happen very quickly. Diamonds, of course, are just compressed carbon. So you find them in kimberlites, which are volcanic tubes, and that is just great pressure. But if you look at all the coal fields in the world, when you look at all the oil fields in the world, there must have been a vast amount of organic material that was rapidly buried and formed those deposits. There is nothing in the present day world that can produce anything on that scale. It is impossible. It had to be a worldwide catastrophe and it had to be of absolute magnificent proportions. If you look at the coal fields in the world and how they are distributed from one continent to the other and how much there is, and you get some idea of the luxurious nature of the pre-flood world. Wow, that, that is quite amazing. And indeed, with the examples that you gave of modern fossilization, it really doesn't make sense that all of the whole of the fossil record would have been made um, as, an, as a series of these small events um, happening around the world. That's why they have to invent millions and millions and millions of years. And they say that they can prove their millions of years with radiometric dating. Radiometric dating proves absolutely nothing because it is based like anything else on assumptions. You have to make certain assumptions. And those assumptions are not necessarily valid. If you take, for example, uranium lead dating, 
then you have to measure the ratio of lead to uranium in a volcanic rock structure. And then you can say, okay, your supposition, your assumption is that all the lead of a particular isotope was derived from decay of uranium. So today you look at the ratio lead to uranium, you know the half-life of uranium, and then you say, okay, there's X amount of lead in this substance per kilogram, and it takes so many million years for the half-life, therefore this took 250 million or whatever years to form this much lead. But your assumption is there was uranium and there was no lead. You don't make the same assumption for calcium or magnesium or phosphorus or any of the other minerals. So if there was lead in the rock to begin with, which is highly likely, then your clock is useless. It's just an assumption. And then the other thing that you have to know, of course, when you have a clock, somebody has to start it. If you have a, if you have a match and you're running around a, a field, and you want to determine how quickly these people run around, you can use a stopwatch. But there's something you must do. There must be someone who clicks the stopwatch when the race starts, and there must be someone who clicks it when the race stops. So who determines when it started, and who determines when it stops? So the assumption is that originally the clocks were all set to zero. So when you're doing a a calculation, then you assume that the clock was set to zero. What if you press the, the, the button halfway? The people have run half the way. Well, then, you know, they will have completed it in a very short time and they will set a world record, but it's fake because you should have pushed it in the beginning, right? Yes. It's exactly the same with these clocks, except that in, instead of pushing it, you're working with mineral concentrations and you're saying there was nothing there and then there is something, which is a ridiculous assumption because it doesn't apply to anything else. It, 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 it honestly does, it doesn't seem to add up. Maybe as, as we move towards the close, I would like to ask you two questions. One is, why are people committed then to a worldview that, suppose, that presupposes millions of years instead of going with the evidence uh, it's very simple, as many a scientist has stated it publicly. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. In other words, science seems to think that it must separate itself from divine revelation. It is something separate. Now, just by doing that, by saying you have to eliminate the possibility of a divine intervention, then you have to come up with a naturalistic answer. Now, everybody knows that uh, the laws of thermodynamics tell you that everything tends to disorder, and you have to create order out of disorder, or you have to create matter out of nothing. That's why the Big Bang states nothing exploded and created everything. But when God created out of nothing, they say that's ridiculous, but their Big Bang came out of nothing. So because you're not allowed to have a divine foot in the door, and you have to have a naturalistic explanation, and there is none, then you have to speculate that given enough time, in terms of billions of years, something might happen. Now, the big problem is, how does it happen when there is nothing? Because in order to have something, you must have time, space, and matter. And uh, we don't have those things. 
in science. When did the Big Bang begin in the beginning? When was the beginning? No one knows. There's no time frame. And when it exploded, what did it explode into? Was there space for it to explode into? And when it did explode, normally everything moves apart at breathtaking speeds, but it somehow needs to contract in order to form matter. Uh, nothing has to contract to form matter. So it really is a quantum science that is mind-boggling and uh, basically emulates what God says on a scientific scale, but with nothing to back it up. Wow, that's interesting. And just to shift gears from the circular view of fossils, I want to bring this home because we have some of our listeners who espouse our faith, they are Seventh-day Adventists. And one thing that often comes up when we have discussions on fossils is a statement made by Sister White in 1864, where she talks about amalgamation. I think I'll just share the statement here. It reads, every species of animal which God had created were preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create, which were the result of amalgamation, were destroyed by the flood. Do you have any comments on this in relation to the subject that we're touching on today? I just did a, a, a series called What's Up Prof? And I also did a series called uh, Nahum, the book of Nahum, the prophet Nahum. And I talk about those issues in that particular series on Nahum. And basically, we are very capable of genetic manipulation at the moment. And there are many, many experiments that have been done where human genes have been mingled with animal genes, and they have now ethically approved those as well. So creatures have been created that are part human, part animal, or the mixture of various animals. So if the pre-flood world with their magnificent brains and their giant intellects had a capacity to do these things, and the Bible tells me, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man, and some of the technology that has been found in the archaeological record and fossil record, by the way, points to technologies that we're not even capable of. They have found many interesting things that show that there was a very high level of intelligence and scientific advance in those days. So I have no doubt that they manipulated creatures. Now, there's a group of animals in the fossil record of which we have not one example living today. What we have today in the vertebrate world is we have the fishes, we have the amphibians, we have the reptile, and we have the mammals, and we have the birds. But there was a group that existed previously, a very large, diverse group of which not one representative exists today. That's the mammal-like reptiles. Now, just that alone, it'll give you some idea. Mammal-like reptiles, that's what they're called. So they're a mixture of mammal and reptile. That's amalgamation. And I'm wondering whether those creatures that were created were the confused ones and didn't come onto the ark. Wow, that's, that's quite fascinating. You know, we really have a world to discover out there. And the interesting thing is science, the more you get into it, really points to a creator. 
Thank you very much, Prof, for sharing your time with us here. It was a pleasure. May God be with you. Maybe, maybe as we as we wrap this up, could you share where listeners can get in touch with you if they wanted to connect with you? I get so many hundreds of emails that there are people that have to to help me. I've got people doing Facebook pages. I don't even look at it myself. I don't get there. I get hundreds of them. So people can can watch the amazing discoveries africa channel it's amazing discoveries.co.za amazing discoveries all one word and they can get all the lectures there and then there's a question and answer place there and they can pop that in and those that are problematic for some people they will send them to me and then we can talk that way no that's that's all right thank you very much for sharing that information i hope that the lord will continue using you in a mighty way i've been following the series that you're doing and i think i've been enjoying them every week i'm one of those that make a, a habit of following what's up prof as well as the others that come up on um, amazing discoveries africa thank you there's one coming out tonight in one hour it will be on at six o'clock I'll be tuning into that one as well. Yes, tell your listeners to look at them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely put a link um, in the podcast show notes so that people can be able to connect with you. Well, that is it for another episode of Podverb. I was awestruck by how Prof. Walter was able to demonstrate how the fossil record provides strong evidence for the biblical flood. If you're like me, I'm sure you can see that science, instead of fighting the Bible, can point us to God's word if we're willing to listen and follow the evidence. If you've been blessed by this episode of the podcast, share the link with one person that will be equally blessed. If you want to reach out, please contact me by sending an email to podcast at podverb.com or you can record a quick voice note by visiting speakpipe.com slash podverb. That is speakpipe.com slash P-O-D-V-E-R-B. Until next time, be blessed, my friends.